Today's episode contains information and details that may be distressing. Listener discretion is advised. In October of 2017, I received a message from a fellow podcaster, Nate Hale of The Conspirators. He asked me to look into a murder that he recalled from the Detroit area in 1992. The story stuck with him, and he was curious what became of the case. So I did what I always do. I searched, and I read. And when that didn't get me what I wanted, I picked up the phone, calling on one of my favorite resources and an unsung hero of researchers everywhere. I got a librarian on the line, and she helped me. With newspaper articles in hand, I reached out on social media. This led me to some interesting conversations, talks with the victim's friends, his mother, his siblings. Conversations with detectives, both active and retired. Talks with lawyers from both sides of the courtroom. From research and reading, meetings and phone calls, came this story. I'm Nate Hale, and this story was my suggestion. And this is Already Gone. It's May 3rd, 1992. 21-year-old Edward Holman is a typical young 20-something. He spent most of the previous night at a party, drinking with friends, and when he arrived home around 4 a.m., his father heard him come in and head down to the basement, something Eddie often did if he was out late. He would watch TV and sleep downstairs on the sofa as not to disturb his parents, Ted and Gina. This isn't like other nights. Edward Holman has only a few hours left to live. On the morning of May 3rd, 1992, Ted Holman will wake up early, before 6 a.m., as he often does. His wife gets up a short time later. They enjoy a cup of coffee and the promise of a warm spring day. They depart a little bit after 7 for the 8 o'clock Mass at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Dearborn. If you've driven down Michigan Avenue, you may recall this glorious cathedral at the corner of Michigan and Military. After morning mass, the Holmans return home for breakfast. The family has a day of work planned. It's spring cleaning weekend in their subdivision, River Oaks. Gina is president of the Homeowners Association, and while Saturday was spent cleaning, mowing, planting, and organizing, there's always more work to be done. Ted makes a trip to the hardware store to pick up a few things, and Gina heads to the basement to get some supplies. The reason that I had to go down there, because I was going to make a sign for, I think it was something at the community house, and I had a box that belonged to River Oaks, and with stencils in it, mm-hmm. and markers, and I was going downstairs I was I was thinking, oh no, yeah, well, I better do it because the stencils, I might have left them at the community house or something. And I went down there to get the stencils, and that's what struck me, that why was he laying on the floor? And the TV, hey, I'm a nut for electricity in that, yeah. you know, and I'm going, so I was going to, I went over there to turn the TV off, and I thought I'll just cover him in that, and... And it looked like he had a, like a quilt or something uh, wrapped around him. And, but that's where, when I thought, okay. uh, So he was covered like with a blanket. 
No. Okay. It was all the the jogging was like bunched up around his shoulders. Right. Throughout this episode, you will hear from Eddie's mother, Gina Holman. Eddie was the youngest of her four children. Gina is a lovely woman with short blonde hair, sparkling eyes, and a warm smile. I visited her at her Oakland County home. When I arrived, Gina was in the middle of decorating for the holidays, her house cheerful and festive. One of the first things she showed me was a small Christmas tree near the front door. The tree was tall and narrow, perched on a table in the foyer. It was decorated with vintage ornaments, some of them handmade. She pointed out several of them, including some made by Eddie when he was a little boy. One of the ornaments was a tiny picture frame containing a photo of her and Ted, the two happy, smiling for the camera, just one moment from their 45-year marriage captured and celebrated. During our visit, Gina gifted me with a Christmas ornament, a sparkling silver snowflake. It hangs in the window of my office, supervising me while I work. Listeners, come with me. 25 years into the past, to the spring of 1992, and an unsolved murder that shook a quiet suburb and created a hole in the heart of a family. Dearborn Heights is a strange place, geographically speaking. The north end of town is wide, and then the city narrows to a strip that runs about two miles, and then the south end of town is wide again. On a map, the city looks a little bit like a barbell that's running north to south. The city's irregular shape allows it to border Detroit, Dearborn, Garden City, Inkster, Redford, and Taylor. Dearborn Heights is half the geographic size and half the population of neighboring Dearborn. The Holman Home A brick ranch in the northeast part of town is a stone's throw from the University of Michigan-Dearborn campus and from Fairlane Mall. Edward Arthur Holman, known as Eddie, was the youngest of four children and lived with his parents in Wayne County, the city of Dearborn Heights. Their subdivision, River Oaks, was a welcoming neighborhood with a pool and a community center, and I imagine that it was a great place to grow up. In 1992, Eddie is the only child still living at home. His older brothers and sister are all moved out. Two of them were married with families of their own. Tommy and Eddie were always extremely close. Tommy kind of was the big brother. Billy is the bigger brother. He lives in and he's managing the but he has a good job. Eddie never considered them to being his half-brothers. Right. They were just brothers. Yeah. And I mean, and Tommy took care of Eddie, made sure that we had a picnic at the in the River Oaks there, and there was a big wind that came up. It was scary. And I was looking for Eddie and yelling for Eddie, and I thought, I don't want him to be. There was a pond. He, right. Oh, it's terrifying. could have gotten blown into it, and that pulled into it, and I, see, I'm Calling him because I was president of the association at okay, that in the time. neighborhood. So we had, I think it might have even been 4th of July, but I said to my husband, Ted, you better go home and see if, if Tommy's around there so he can look for Eddie. 
Well, Tommy took Eddie on his bike and rode him home because he was scared of this, a storm, you know. Aww. But just things like that. Eddie was an athletic, adventurous kid. He taught himself to play guitar. He learned to windsurf. In high school, that's Dearborn High, class of 88, he was on the wrestling team where he earned a varsity letter. He also played football. Outside of school, he played ice hockey. Eddie's size helped his athleticism. He was a big guy, broad-shouldered and nearly six feet tall. He was also a nice guy. If you think back to high school and the various cliques, Eddie was a jock. His friends and siblings tell me that Eddie got along well with everyone. He was a good football player, but then there was uh, a little bit of things going on with Richard. He was a good football player, too. His mom would talk to the coach and a little bit like that, and then Eddie would be pulled out, and Richard would go in. And so Eddie, hey, he's got kind of had my attitude. The hell with it. I'm not even going to put, you know, if I'm not going to play, I'm not going to be going to practice and and uh, he also was an extremely good hockey player. He went to Dearborn and got on a Dearborn team okay. when he still was in high school. Okay. Because he loved hockey yeah. more than he did football. Oh, yeah. While in high school, Eddie started dating a girl named Mara. Mara had a tumultuous home life, and Eddie asked his parents if she could move in with their family. Concerned for Mara's well-being, the Holmans welcomed her into their home. And they were correct to be concerned about her. Gina recalls that Mara took ill with the flu not long after she moved into their house. While Mara was not the girl that Gina Holman wanted for her son, she knew that they were young, and these things have a way of working themselves out. She and her husband, Ted, watched as the relationship developed and changed. After graduating from high school, Eddie enrolled at nearby Henry Ford Community College and took classes there while working a part-time job. While he enjoyed school, he wanted more than Henry Ford Community College could offer, so Eddie enrolled in the Spartan School of Aeronautics in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so he could study aviation. Eddie wanted to be a pilot. Mara would move with him to Oklahoma, and the two shared an apartment while Eddie studied aviation and worked to obtain a pilot's license. Mara had lived with the Holman family for two years and then lived with Eddie in Oklahoma while he completed his training. In 1990, the young couple became engaged. Eddie didn't have the money to buy a fancy diamond ring like Mara was hoping for, but he purchased a cubic zirconia in a gold setting at the local Crowley's department store and he proposed to her on Christmas. The young couple toasted their future with a glass of champagne. In 1991, Eddie earned a commercial pilot's license, and later that year, Eddie and Mara returned to Michigan. It was Gina who came to Oklahoma to help the couple pack up and move out of their apartment. His pilot training has ended, and so has the relationship with Mara. Maybe it was the strain of being so far from home, Perhaps they realized that they wanted different things. While they would remain friends, the engagement is called off. The couple returns to Michigan. Eddie returns to his parents' home. In January of 1992, Eddie received his twin-engine certification. Wanting to improve his flight skills, Eddie enrolls at Oakland Community College. 
His goal is to work as a flight instructor until he's old enough to be a commercial pilot. While Eddie has a pilot's license and completed his training, you have to be 23 years old to fly a commercial plane. So several times a week, Eddie makes the drive from Dearborn north to Oakland Community College for aviation courses and training at the Pontiac Airport. Winter and spring of 1992 is a good time for him. He's 21 and single. He has a part-time job at a men's clothing store and is making friends at the new school and at Oakland County Airport. The weekend of May 1st, 1992, is all about old friends. On Friday, May 1st, Eddie makes the two-hour drive north to Mount Pleasant, Michigan, home of Central Michigan University. Some of his high school buddies are students there, and they invite him up for a visit. With Eddie in Oklahoma for much of 1991, he hasn't spent much time with his friends from high school. So Friday night is an evening of catching up with his old friends and partying. It's the end of the semester in Mount Pleasant, and Eddie's friends will be back in Dearborn Heights within a week or two. The guys have already started packing up their dorm room in anticipation of moving home for the summer. Eddie agrees to help them out and loads boxes into his car to bring back to Dearborn Heights. When they wake up late morning on Saturday, Eddie tells his friends that he needs to head home. They ask him, stay another night, there's more fun to be had, but Eddie took a pass. He wants to get back to Dearborn Heights that afternoon. His friends have no idea that they will never see him alive again. Saturday afternoon finds Eddie back in Dearborn Heights. He sees his parents only briefly. They are working on community association stuff for the River Oak subdivision. It's spring cleanup day. There's raking, mowing, and other yard work to be done, and the community pool needs to be ready for its opening Memorial Day weekend. Saturday afternoon, Eddie visits a friend's house to sit in on their band practice. The band practice is with guys from high school, some of whom will be at the party that Eddie attends Saturday night. When Ted and Gina Holman return home around 5.30, they can tell that Eddie was back, but there's no sign of him. He's already headed out for the evening. That party with friends over in Dearborn. As he heads over, Eddie stops to pick up a friend from high school, Pat. Remember, Eddie is a nice guy, and he gets along with almost everyone, moving between social cliques with ease from what I've heard. Now, the group hosting the party was not his jock friends. They were from another clique. But again, many of these people had known Eddie for years, some since elementary school. While at the party, Eddie is drinking. He's drinking a lot. So much, in fact, that when his body is autopsied, his blood alcohol level is above the legal limit. Since he'd had a lot to drink, Eddie should not have driven that night, but he made it home safely in the small hours of Sunday morning. His dad, Ted, will later say that he thought he heard Eddie arrive home around 4 a.m. A few minutes later, his dad heard his son, or someone, climb the basement stairs and use the bathroom on the first floor before returning to the basement. Eddie often chose to sleep downstairs after a long night out, so this behavior did not raise a red flag for his parents. 
Like many Detroit-area homes, part of the Holman basement was fixed up into a den with a television, sofa, and carpeting, creating a casual living space. Just beyond the den area is a typical basement arrangement with a laundry room, workshop, and storage. But to one thing that I do want to specify that Eddie, he was drunk. He was, you know, uh, the party and everything, but he did not have any any uh, drugs in his system right. at all. So not to say he didn't experiment with some. No, but we all, we've all been 20, 21. Well, so. no. <laughs> I, went, I think I jumped over to being 30. <laughs> As is their routine on Sunday morning, Eddie's parents, Ted and Gina, attend early morning mass. After services, they return home about 9.30, and it was just after 10 a.m. when Gina went downstairs. There was more work to do for the Neighborhood Association. Gina needed spray paint and stencils for the signs, and Ted headed out to the hardware store to pick up a few things. When she sees Eddie, he's lying on his stomach on the carpeted floor near the sofa. His face turned toward the television. There is a fluff of black fabric around his shoulders. Her youngest child doesn't look right, and when she peers closer, she realizes that his face is discolored, and he's not breathing. Went up the stairs to the neighbor's house, and I didn't, I thought your husband was, I didn't know your husband wasn't home, so I didn't understand why you didn't just... I ran upstairs and I called 912. Oh, honey. And I, and I... And oddly enough, because he did the same mistake when he tried dialing yeah. back when she, you know. Yeah, in the middle and, of the night when he made his phone call, he transposed the yes. number. And and when I went up there, and I and then I hung it up real fast again, and I called, and I'm telling, and they wanted me to go back downstairs. Oh, hell no. And okay. to see if he was alive. And they said, do you have a phone down there? And I said, yes. And I'm going, oh, I don't I don't think I can do this. And I'm waiting and thinking, maybe Ted will come home. And she said, go ahead. You can do it. Just go down there. And and anyway, so I said, okay. And I went really, really slow. And, and I looked, and I knew he was dead. I put my hand on his shoulder, and it was cold. And I got on the phone, and I said, yes, he's not breathing. And I went upstairs, and then she said, okay. She said, are you okay? And I said, I am hanging up the phone. She said, no, stay on the line. And I said, I am going next door. And that's when I went to my neighbors. Yeah. And then she and her husband came over, and the husband, you know, and she is... You know, I told her because we were really tight. You right. know, we were close. But no, I dialed nine one nine one two and then nine one one, and I'm right. I'm going. Oh, but when Gina told me the story, all I could think about was Ted Holman at the hardware store picking up a few things like it's just any other day. Ted Holman is looking forward to a productive Sunday with his family. He doesn't know what's waiting for him at home. Eddie was Ted Holman's only child. When paramedics from the Dearborn Heights Fire Department arrive at the Holman home, they need to check Eddie for signs of life. Rather than disturb the scene, they place a stethoscope to his back and check for respiration or a heartbeat. 21-year-old Edward Arthur Holman, son, brother, and friend, is gone. 
hit him in the back of the head. He was sleeping on the couch, as okay. he always did, right. covered with an afghan. And uh, the I think what happened was, and maybe I'm guessing that maybe after after it was happened, he was struck in the back of the head. I mean, he was drinking, and mm-hmm. I would think maybe he would have been knocked out or something. At any rate, the uh, going to get the jogging pants, that's first thing you see. And like Richard Walter said, that to have tied this around his neck, well, one foot was on the short end, and the other was pulled up with two hands. Okay, I, I, I was having trouble picturing it, and now I can picture it. It's almost like an upside-down nine with the tail of it coming this way. So it was looped right. and then pulled. Right. So they were standing on the short end. Right. And the straight, the long end, they were pulling it straight up. The so left it was compressing his neck. Yeah. The left foot was on the short end. Okay. And the long end of the of the pants was with both hands. Okay. In its sense, the fact that he was drunk, and I'm saying that because I don't know. The officers on scene notify the Detective Bureau of a suspicious death. When detectives arrive, they take a closer look at the body. There is blood near his left elbow and blood pooling beneath his face. Eddie is on the floor with his arms bent at the elbows, his hands beneath his body. His face is turned toward the television. On the initial report, police note it is obvious that he is deceased due to his appearance. Gina told me that Eddie's face was discolored and puffy from the struggle to stay alive. There are marks on his face consistent with Eddie trying to free himself from the makeshift noose around his neck. Dearborn Heights Police notify the coroner's office and search the basement for signs of a struggle or signs of suicide, but nothing in the basement points to one cause of death or the other. Detectives roll Eddie's body over onto his back and discover that the leg of a pair of exercise pants is wrapped tightly around his neck. Thinking that perhaps Eddie harmed himself, police explore the area around the body, looking for a place that the pants could have been secured, allowing him to strangle himself. But they cannot find a piece of furniture or a ceiling beam capable of holding his weight, making it unlikely that Eddie took his own life. Dearborn Heights Police request that the Wayne County Coroner respond to the Holman home. This allows the coroner the opportunity to examine the body and look at the space where Eddie died. Bringing a coroner to a crime scene is an unusual move. And when Dr. Chung arrives, she states this is a homicide. So the scene is processed, with pictures taken, evidence collected. They even impound Eddie's Mustang, taking it to their department so it can be processed for evidence. Eddie's body will remain on the basement floor for several hours as evidence technicians and crime scene analysts look for clues and take pictures of the scene. When Ted and Gina Holman are interviewed, they tell police that someone called the house around 4 a.m., but they aren't sure if Eddie answered the phone or if the caller disconnected. Their phone records will clarify what happened, and we'll come back to that later. Police not only take Eddie's car, they take the carpet from the basement of the Holman home. They want to process both to see what clues may lead them to the person who killed Eddie Holman. 
Gina and Ted couldn't agree on what time Eddie came home that morning. Gina thinks he came in closer to 1 a.m., but Ted thinks he heard him come in around 4 a.m. But they both agree that someone called the house at 4 a.m. and that the phone rang only once. Eddie's father, Ted, is a creature of habit. He wakes up each day around 5 a.m., and he did on this day as well. He didn't notice anything out of the ordinary as he went about his morning routine. Remember, Gina and Ted left the house just before 7.30 to attend 8 a.m. Mass at Sacred Heart Catholic Church. The Holmans are regular churchgoers, and to this day, Gina attends Mass each week. We This happened when we were in Mass. Yeah, we were at church mass. when it happened. And I blame myself, but I shouldn't. So when I went to church, and I'm thinking, because Sunday I would come home and I'd cook bacon or whatever oh, yeah. and have breakfast, and he would sleep in, yeah. and then he'd have, I think I cooked a pound of bacon, and uh, he would get up and he would have, he would at least eat the bacon, right? you know. But um, he, uh, I didn't lock the door. Because I wanted to talk to him. Like, why weren't you there to help your dad? Yeah. You know, and so in mass is like 45 minutes. Right. And and it seemed that the Father Keneally, he, he was winded that. And I'm thinking, I don't know why. I was just anxious to leave because I wanted to talk to him. Uh, you know, and of course, my husband was outside. It was a beautiful day, a okay. beautiful day. Because Eddie had a busy social weekend leading up to his death, detectives have a lot of people to track down and interview. His friends in Mount Pleasant, the ones he partied with on Friday night, they also need to identify people who are at the party in Dearborn on Saturday night. There are dozens of 20-somethings to locate, interview, and in some cases, polygraph. Interviews with his family, his friends, neighbors in the River Oaks subdivision. Police talked to many of Eddie's closest friends, including Mara, Eddie's one-time fiancée. While they'd been broken up for months, Eddie was on the phone with Mara just a few hours before his body was found. It's worth mentioning that since ending the engagement, Eddie had not been lonely. He'd dated frequently, including rekindling a relationship with a young woman he'd dated in high school before he met Mara. Remember that 4 a.m. phone call? The Holman's phone records reveal that Eddie spoke to Mara in the early morning hours of May 3rd. She had called the house to speak with him. According to Gina Holman, Mara told her that Eddie sounded like himself during the call. He wasn't upset about anything, nor did he seem depressed. So it's 1992, and we don't have social media or cell phones. We might have pagers, but they weren't super popular back then. But even without social media and this technology, news of Eddie's murder spread like wildfire. Many of his friends from high school are back in town now that school's out for the summer, and the phone lines are burning up with news of his death. The rumor mill has kicked in to high gear. Now, I've heard that guests at the Saturday night party were smoking pot. In 2018, marijuana use is not as big of a deal, but back then... A drug bust could land you in prison. And this could have been one of the reasons that people were hesitant to talk or claim not to remember certain things from the night of Saturday, May 2nd, or the morning of Sunday, May 3rd. 
In the mid-1990s, Eddie's case went before a one-man grand jury. This means that instead of presenting the case to a panel of citizens, the case is presented to a judge. Unfortunately, many of those called to testify pled the fifth, refusing to answer questions about their activities in the early hours of May 3, 1992. The case does not move forward. And Dearborn Heights police have other cases requiring their attention. They did not forget about Eddie Holman, but without new leads, his case went cold. It did not go cold for Ted and Gina Holman. They continued to pursue justice for their son. They hired an attorney to represent their interests. Frustrated with the Dearborn Heights police, they hired a private investigator to dig into the case. Eventually, they contacted a man named Richard Walter. Walter is one of the co-founders of the VDOC Society, and best known for his work on the psychological profile of mass murderer John List. Walter is a well-respected investigator, and he developed a theory of the crime, which he shared with the family and Dearborn Heights police. Sadly, without people willing to talk, it's not enough for an arrest. I would like to spend a couple of minutes looking at some of the rumors and theories around this case. But before I do, I want to make clear that law enforcement has never named a suspect or a person of interest in the death of Edward Holman. So I'm wondering, could the killer or killers have come home with Eddie that night? Could he have invited them to sleep over and there was a disagreement? a disagreement that turned into murder. But I find this unlikely because the Holman home was not big enough to prevent his parents from hearing an argument or a struggle in the basement. They likely also would have heard two sets of footsteps going downstairs at the same time. I suspect that the killer or killers knew the Holman family routine of attending early mass on Sundays and let themselves into the house. I believe that Eddie was asleep on the sofa in the basement, a common practice for him on the weekend. Someone entered the house and came downstairs, striking him in the face, leaving a gouge on his forehead and a bruise on his cheek. When Eddie rose to confront his attacker, he was struck again, this time on the back of the head, knocking him to the floor. Or maybe he was struck on the back of the head first, and when he turned to confront his attacker, he was struck in the face. The killer acted quickly, grabbing a pair of pants from the nearby laundry area and wrapping them tightly around his neck. Eddie struggled, and there is evidence of his struggle in photos taken of him after his death. The killer also took time to arrange things downstairs. The basement area was staged to make it look like Holman took his own life, but the injuries to his head and face make that unlikely not to mention the coroner, Dr. Chung, who viewed the basement the morning Eddie's body was discovered. She did not believe that 21-year-old Edward Holman took his own life. The question becomes, who would want to do this to him? Where is the motive? Dearborn Heights police talked to everyone, his parents and siblings, his former fiancé, the kids who were at the party Saturday night, friends and acquaintances from the neighborhood and that he visited with in Mount Pleasant on Friday. No one could come up with a motive to murder Eddie Holman. Not Eddie like didn't that. have any enemies, you know. A lot of girls liked him. I, yeah, I can see why. <laughs> yeah, he, he was really kind of, 
you know, um, well, he was personable. And, yeah, you he know, was a nice looking kid. Yeah, he, was he, was, he was a good guy. Yeah. yeah, he enjoyed, he laughed about, this is what a lot of his friends always say, you know, oh God, he, he'd laugh at anything, you know. In a 1993 interview with the Detroit News, one of the detectives on the case says he believes the killer is someone local to the area, someone who knew Eddie Holman, and he does not believe that Eddie's murder is drug-related. Eventually, Eddie's case went before a grand jury, but it didn't lead to an arrest or an indictment. When people, and by people I mean witnesses as well as suspects, are called to testify and they plead the fifth, it does little to move the case forward. One of the things to consider about Eddie's murder is that his parents weren't home. They were attending Sunday service, which means the killer or killers had to know that his parents attended church each Sunday morning, preferring the early service. The killer also had to have access to the house. Ted Holman was careful to lock the house behind him when he left. Could the person who killed Eddie have a key to the Holman home? Or did the killer arrive earlier? If Eddie forgot to lock the door behind him when he returned home, the murderer could have slipped in through the side door and down to the basement, where Eddie, still drunk from partying the night before, was asleep on the sofa, not knowing that he had only minutes left to live. Another rumor that I heard about the case is that there was a strange car seen on Eddie's street that morning. You know, Eddie attended this local party over in Dearborn the night before he died. Could there have been an altercation between himself and another partygoer? Or could Eddie have done something at the party that angered someone enough that they drove to his home in the small hours of Sunday morning to confront him, but ended up killing him instead? This brings us to today, 2018. In the 25 years since Eddie Holman was murdered, his friends have grown up, moved on, and some of them have moved away, leaving Michigan behind. Others are still in the area, just a few miles from where they grew up in Dearborn and Dearborn Heights. I wonder, did those same people, the ones who pled the fifth rather than testify about the death of their friend, are they ready to speak up? Are they ready to finally reveal what they know about May 3rd, 1992? This case is being investigated by the Dearborn Heights Police Department. If you have information about the murder of Eddie Holman, please contact Detective Sergeant Sean Paulus at 313-277-6770. If you just want to talk about the case with other listeners, please check out the Already Gone podcast discussion group on Facebook. While researching this story, I spoke with several people close to the case, and I am grateful for their contributions to the story, especially Gina Holman. She invited me into her home, answered all of my questions, and helped me get a clear picture of Eddie, her youngest son. Thank you, Gina. The Holman family has never given up on finding who murdered Eddie Holman, and they believe that Eddie's killer will be brought to justice. I need to send special thanks to Roseanne of the California Dreaming podcast and Erica of Southern Fried True Crime. 
These are talented women who helped me out with this episode. I included links to their work in the show notes. You should give them a listen. You can follow Already Gone on Twitter at Already Gone Pod. Find us on Facebook, where we have a page for the show and a Facebook discussion group. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, you can email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. I'm Mina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.